0: Our Freedoms Podcast. I'm your host, Joy Vatrebeck, and this is my co host, Mark Renahan. Today we are on the second series of Remembering 9 11 20 Years Later. If you missed yesterday's podcast, you will want to uh, view that on www.ascf.us, our website, and also on our social media, as well as Protecting Our Freedoms Facebook page.
1: Well, Joy, thank you. And thank you once again, everybody, for tuning in. Today, again, as Joy said, is part two of the Protecting Our Freedom series, remembering 9 11 20 years later. Today, we have another guest on. Yesterday, of course, we had Detective Sergeant Jerry Kane. Jerry told us of what it was like on September 11th as a police officer. So today, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Uh, on the phone, we have with us an attorney, an author, and a, well, he's not young anymore. My cousin, I, I had to tell that up because you're going to hear his last name, John Renahan, and John was an attorney in New York City on September 11th. John, how are you?
2: Marco, how you been?
1: I'm doing great. John, I wanted to just dive right into it. I know, uh, you know, as a, a fellow Irishman, you like to talk as much as I do, but I thought maybe you could give us your day on September 11th and maybe tell us a little bit about you were an attorney in New York and how your day and your events went.
2: Yeah, sure mark um yeah i was working my uh my first job out of law school uh, for the the they call it the corporation council it's the city attorney's office um and our office was down on down on church street down on 100 church street which is sort of a a block up from the main complex and across the street from world trade number seven um it was a funny morning i had flown in i had been out in Uh, California, visiting my brother, your cousin, and his wife, and had flown in late late the night before out on Islip in Long Island. I think I got back to my apartment in Manhattan, I don't know, 2 in the morning, something like that. And uh, so when everything happened, I hadn't even left the house yet. You know, we were a bunch of lawyers, like, start late, finish late, you know, 9.30 office kind of thing. And so, except for the early birds, nobody had even made it down to the office yet. Um, you know, and I knew I had a, uh, I had a trial rotation that week. So I knew I was going to be in the office every night till, you know, 10 o'clock. So, you know, I'm puttering around the apartment, hadn't even left yet. And I didn't have the TV on or anything. And phone rang and my sister was on the phone saying, hey, are you watching TV? Um, and so I turned on the TV and you know every channel had so the first tower had been hit at that point and you know every channel had it on and you know I hadn't had the TV on for 10 seconds thinking you know what's going on here an airplane you know hit one of the towers you know which was surreal enough you know I used to walk down and you know eat my lunch in the plaza there by the what's it called the world sphere that big globe in the in the plaza but you know, I had about five seconds of thinking, you know, that seems off. How could an airplane possibly hit the tower? And then here comes a second plane came in, you know. And then, of course, in that second, everybody knew, you know, that it was some kind of a terrorist attack. And everybody remembered that the building had been attacked before. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, I got on the phone and... I tried calling the people from work that I knew were sort of early birds and, you know, the phones weren't going through anything like that. Um, and then the buildings fell down and then, you know, I went outside and, and, you know, people, is just, it's just, it was just so strange. You know, everybody, you know, everybody's just talking to everybody in the street, you know, like they all know each other, which isn't really, you
1: know, normal for not, New York. Yeah.
2: New York. And you know, folks are just dazed and, you know, what's going on and nobody really knew what to do. And I didn't know what to do, but, you know, we were concerned I would I didn't be able to reach anybody from work. And so, I mean, John, just, not it, to
1: interrupt you, but your office was right yeah. across the street, correct? You, yeah, we were
2: sort of across the street from World Trade Number no. 7, which was that one at the corner of the complex that fell down, you know, toward the end of the day.
1: So as the day started and you see the towers fall, you have no idea, you know, what's going on with your coworkers because you can't get through. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't know if, you know, I mean, it looked like the thing just decimated everything around it, you know, and so I didn't know if our building was just pulverized to smithereens or what, you know, it turns out, you know, you know, the building came through mostly fine. There was some damage to one side of it when number seven came down and. You know, some of, some of the landing gear from one of the planes came through the towers and ended up on the roof of our building. And, and this poor guy, I heard this guy was standing at the door to the Burger King. That was across the street, you know, where we'd get coffee, breakfast, whatever, and a piece of engine. Something came down and killed this guy right on the spot where he stood just kind of coming out of the restaurant with his coffee for the morning. So, uh, so
0: John, you were, were you on your way into work when you, all this started happening?
2: yeah i mean i was just you know getting ready to go and taking my time i knew i was gonna have a late night that night and just dragging my feet and then and didn't even have the tv on or anything until my sister called yeah. but uh you know once it all happened i didn't really know what to do and so i went upstairs and it was the weirdest thing like i put my work clothes on like i put my suit on it's still hanging in the closet and probably never get rid of it um i put my suit on and my tie you know and like i was gonna go to work and just started walking you know because the subways weren't running just kind of started walking downtown i was probably a couple miles from where the trade center was i was on 22nd street if you know manhattan at all um and just walked just kind of started walking and walked south and south and you know finally got to some barricades down around canal street someplace and You know, and they gave us these badges that are these absurd badges because, you know, it looks like a, you know, like a police officer badge or something like that in the little book. You know, you keep your ID and it gives you a badge as a, you know, a city attorney. Wow. Um, But, you know, I kind of flashed it at the gate and said, you know, I work down here just trying to see what's going on with my friends from work. And so they kind of waved me through the first barrier and then I got to another one and, and just sort of went from kind of barrier to barrier and got shunted across the city, uh, like across Lower Manhattan, and ended up in Foley Square. Which, if you don't know Manhattan, if you watch, you know, I call we call it the Law and Order courthouse. It's where all the big courthouses are in this this huge plaza over there, just a few blocks from the Trade Center. And and I got there and it was wild because you know, everybody that had headed downtown was kind of you know ended up there and there was this huge sort of spontaneous volunteer effort going on because you know all these fire departments from all over new england and all over the country and everything none of that had gotten there yet you know and a lot of the fire assets you know had been lost you know in the immediate you know when the towers came down um so it was crazy there were random you know people from the national guard you know out of uniform who sort of came to help and all this stuff they're trucks pulling up already this is like mid-morning by this point there are trucks pulling up dumping lumber and they're making you know litters by the hundreds and everything and these guys sort of showed up and i don't even know if they were off-duty police uh you know out of uniform military but they just kind of told everybody who's there they said hey everybody that's here you know we're gonna need your help because we don't have a lot of you know rescue anything yet so we're gonna put you all in these squads, and everybody's gonna be in charge of you know, you'll have somebody in charge of you know, somebody that used to be military or off duty police or something. And you're all you're gonna help us look for people, like you know, not down in the burning rubble, but in all the streets and everything all around that are all smoky and there's rubble everywhere, and people are hiding in stores or hurt in the street. And so, we all just kind of said, uh, the, oh, okay and they started you know tearing up shirts and they gave everybody a tourniquet and they said we're all gonna go look and if you can guide some people out that's great and they put us on these buses and kind of drove us across lower manhattan real close to where world trade number seven was and then got us out and it was just kind of weird and they were lining us up and just gonna you know send us into you know just like these smoky streets and then right when right when they were going to do that a bunch of firefighters and police came all their vehicles came backing up way up the street from number seven because at this point it's deep into the afternoon by then and they said everybody back 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 you know buildings the building's not sound and so they pushed they called off all that and they pushed everybody back and just told us hey you know disappear you know come back tonight maybe you can help out or something and so we all started walking up a couple blocks around the corner uh, I don't remember how much longer later, but yeah, then the the that last building came down, and you know the streets are all filled with smoke again, and everybody was panicked and running again. Um, and I was, I mean, that was the day. You know, it was a weird, you know, nobody's cell phone worked You know, my parents, they were in Ireland. It was one of the only overseas trips they ever took. They got away to Ireland, and you know, they couldn't reach me. I couldn't reach them. You know i don't think i got a really a message out to anybody so i don't know two three in the afternoon but you know and that was that was the day you know they held us around there until like all the you know police and fire got there and then they just organized people into you know like giving car rides to firefighters coming and going from ground zero and all that kind of thing so they, uh, were,
0: they were utilizing uh regular citizens at this point or they were going to try to utilize regular citizens to help out
2: until the police I mean, arrived? it was madness. None of us had any idea what to do, but, you know, it was just everything. It was just one of those, you know, everything was so topsy-turvy, you know, and the, the people that knew what they were doing weren't there yet. Uh, and then, you know, in the days afterwards, we just helped where we could. And, you know, I gave rides to the firefighters and cops and things. And then for work, they finally, you know, called us and they told us, you know, our building was closed, I don't know, for six months, something like that. It had been damaged. And so they reassigned a bunch of us to go work on Pier 94, which is all these piers on the Hudson. It was a big convention space. And they sent all of us, like the city attorneys, to work with the families of all the victims, you know, and help them get get their affairs squared away. I mean, some of it, they just, all the nuts and bolts they needed, you know, needed death certificates they needed us to talk to the you know mortgage companies and help get them deferments and you know all of that kind of thing Uh, so we did that for a few months you know and that was you know that's awful you know sitting there with you know a family of you know firefighters and you know the youngest brother got killed and you know here's the dad and the grandpa and all his brothers here crying all over your desk and all that kind of thing i can imagine
1: so, Jonah, first, I, I want to say I, I appreciate, as a Renahan, you using your questionable badge to get past barricades. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I taught you at least something do bef- again. before you moved to California. But w- one of the main reasons why I, I wanted Joy and I wanted to have you on the show, is um, how old were you at the time of September 11th? I know we're the same age, but I, I just... Uh, what
2: were we? What were we? We're 27? Well, you're three younger, Mark. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's why I wanted to say <laughs> uh, it, but... We were still kids. I guess so we to were speak. what,
2: 29? We just turned yes, 29. that's I just guess.
1: what it was. Yes, and and so we we were still you know kids to a point, um, point. Yep. and I know you were, of course had gotten out of law school, and as my cousin, I, I am biased, but you are uh, very much an academic and an incredibly bright mind. So uh, what I wanted to talk about next is uh, your decision that uh, a large part was based upon September 11th. To join the army, I I know that when you joined the army, the shock waves that went through the Renahan's were quite high. I know if it was me, they would have been like, oh good, drop them off. But with you, it was uh, you know they were they were you know there was it was a, a shock to some of us, myself included. I won't lie to you, Jono, yeah. I I did not expect you to um, immediately go and do that, and it was I was very proud of you. But maybe you could touch base a little bit on how you know September 11th affected your decision at age 29 as a very bright lawyer with a career ahead of him, to uh, join the Army.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was never really, yeah, I mean, you know, it was never really on our radar, you know. Like, I, I mean, you know, going back, like, with Pop, like, with our grandfather, you know, people have served when there's a need, but we're not really a military family, you know, per se. And then, and it's just, yeah, it wasn't really. I, I remember when I went off to college, I didn't even know what, what, the, how the, what the military academies were west point naval academy i didn't even know what that did Yo, know, you get a college degree and you're commissioned as an officer stuff like that um and then so yeah it's some it never would have occurred to me but then by you know shortly after that i mean obviously you know everybody's you know angry but you know i don't want to say like you know i signed up for revenge you know whatever but they were yeah i mean they're expanding the they're expanding the services and You know and they needed you know motivated people and there are a lot of motivated people in new york and you know my brother your cousin stephen and i we talked about you know he spent time in the guard went to officer candidate school out here in california and uh you know i probably spent like about a year dithering and then you know decided to go for it and then uh you know i had to wait a little bit because until they opened the you know Donsfeld, secretary Rumsfeld said, you know, we're going to expand the, the armed services. You know, it was, they weren't, you know, officer Canada school, which is how I got commissioned. It was still more on sort of a peacetime footing. You know, it's a pretty quiet place. They don't commission a lot of officers from there, except in wartime. And then that becomes sort of the main commissioning source. So it took a little time for that to, for them to get that ramped up. And then I went to a recruiter you know, and it's funny, you, you go to the same recruiters as if you're like eighteen years old and they're trying to get you to sign up, except you know, you're you're heading down this other path. And they they I took the medical exam and uh, everything was fine. And then you take this whole questionnaire, you know, all the stuff that everybody knows you can't do, you know, do you sleep walk and all this stuff? And it said, Do you do you use, you know, any prosthetic or orthotic or anything like that and i got super flat feet and you know have since i was 20 i wear these you know the custom things in your shoes that they mold to your foot you know because of my screwed up feet and like a dummy i answered the question truthfully and it came back immediately disqualified no flat feet and my my recruiter explained to me "It's like you dummy you know you you can have any kind of medical problem once you're in the army and they'll sort it out but you know there's some that you just can't you know have up front you know asthma sleepwalking whatever and and so he told me to you know kind of let's wait it out another cycle and then maybe you know we'll zero out that medical exam and you can take the exam again um and so in the long and honorable tradition of people that conceal medical issues, I snuck my orthotic shoe inserts into basic training. <laughs> like I didn't have any issue. And whenever we'd have to change from sneakers to boots or back again or whatever, I'd be slipping them back from one into the other. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that's what I did. I went to basic training, then Officer Candidate School, (OCS) down at Fort Benning in Georgia.
0: And what year was that?
2: Sorry? What
0: year was that?
2: So that was what, so... By the time everything came through, and then I had to wait for a class date and all that stuff, that was 2004. By then,
1: so how old are you in boot camp, John?
2: Thirty-two.
1: You're 32, and the average person in there is what? 18, 17?
2: You know, most of them are 18 to 20, and then there was this little cadre. There's maybe a dozen of us that were, you know. 27, And uh, I was not the oldest guy in my boot camp class. And it was mostly people like me that were coming like the OCS route, you know, they'd college, they'd been working and, you know, sort of worked hard to get ourselves in shape and all that kind of thing. And but it's still it's a it's a funny, surreal experience doing basic training as a old person. It's almost easier. Like if you get yourself in shape beforehand so the physical stuff is all right it's almost easier because all the drama and the screaming at you and all the everything like it just it all it just kind of bounces off
1: so all right so now uh, i want to get to the next part um you know of course after september 11th the war on terror began um and of course we went to afghanistan first and then that uh, forwarded on to iraq uh, maybe you could touch a little bit and uh, now i know again and and i as a you know now you're 30 something you're uh, 33 or whatever and i i'm trying to remember this going back to when you you were first going away but i know that you then get called to go to war and of course that set every irish catholic woman in our family off the deep end and you know i we, we received <laughs> many calls about johns going to iraq and you know but t- tell no me comment. what what was it what was it like you know you're now 33 uh, you, you're a couple of years earlier you're a lawyer in new york city and then september 11th happens and now yourself find yourself heading to Iraq. What, what, what was going through your head at that point?
2: Um, that I, I hope I actually got back to marry my fiancé and was a big idiot for signing up. For.
1: <laughs> I forgot to add the part that that, that is the, the, something else that, that I, I would really admire you for, is that you had just met uh, my future cousin-in-law uh, and the mother of my godson and his sister, my uh, little cousins, Colin and Lucy, and so you guys were still in the, you know, the, the beginning of dating. And it must have been an interesting topic to be come down one day and say, you know, how was your day? Good. By the way, I've joined the Army. Did, did, you, uh, did, you, did you discuss that? I never asked you this. Did you discuss with Susan, like, listen, I was in New York. September 11th happened, and I had, to, you know, thought about the military service, but now I'd like to do it. Uh, and now at age 30, I know we should be getting married soon. And by the way, I do remember, you, did you get married? No, you got married after because all the guys were at the wedding. So, yeah, right uh, after. Yeah, so you were, you know, did you get engaged beforehand and then you go off to Iraq? So what, what's going through your head? You're 32. Uh-huh. You're uh, on, a, on a plane to, I think you guys went through Ireland to get over to Iraq. And you're yeah. engaged. And, you know, what's, go, what's going through your head at this point?
2: So, so yeah, no, you're you're right So when we, when we met, you know, I already had my application in for OCS and I was just waiting on it. And so I coughed it up on our first date, you know, like I didn't even want to think of it as like, I didn't want to assume it was a date because I said, I'm going to cough this up and she's going to be like, all right, good luck, pal. (laughs) See you later. I'll
1: call you tomorrow. Uh, Don't call me.
2: Yeah. But fortunately she did not. So she knew from the beginning and you know, we were kind of dating long distance because she was living in New York, but working all week in Delaware, um, at the time on a political campaign. And so we'd see each other on the weekends and then dated for about 10 months, not quite 10 months before I took off, but yeah, going to Iraq. I mean, it was a surreal thing. We went through, I think I can say the house. So we went through Amsterdam on the way in, we went through Ireland on the way out, which was hilarious because they opened the bar for us in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> Or maybe they just never close because it's Ireland. <laughs> but, we can say that. Um, so going in, we went through, uh, yeah, we went through Amsterdam. And then the route from there, it's weird because we, you would go from there to Kuwait, you know, and then you spend some time in Kuwait and then you go north to Iraq. Uh, but so to get to Kuwait, we flew south over Iraq, which is just the the strangest sensation. Like you're you know you're sort of going over the place that you're going to and looking down I and mean, then you know a lot of it's empty desert you see oil wells and stuff and you're just thinking like that's really strange like I'm above this place that I'm going to and somewhere some unknown number of people want to kill me down there but um, you know but it is it's weird especially knowing that you're leaving somebody that you're coming back to but at the same time you don't some part of your brain just kind of somewhere up in the air it's like you cross through this invisible wall where you're sort of like you know like maybe i've said my goodbyes to everybody i just don't know um so but yeah that's it's a real strange time and then you spend some time in kuwait which is this terrible just limbo because you're you know you're neither here nor there you just kind of want to get to where you're going to where just get it done. Cause by the time the point comes around, you know, it's been coming for months and then they give you, you know, once you pack up all your stuff and send it, they give you like almost a month off um, before you leave. And by the time it happens, everybody's like, let's just get this thing started, you know, so we can get done. And then of course we got there and well, first of all, Our loved ones found out through the TV channel down in Savannah, which is where I was at Fort Stewart. Our our families and loved ones found out that we were deploying before we did, because we were out in a field exercise and somebody leaked it to the local news. And then once we were in Iraq a couple months, that was during the whole surge time and everything. This is 2007. Then we found out that we had been extended from a year to 15 months. And our families found out that on TV before we did, too. John,
0: I can completely understand. <laughs> I completely understand what you're saying, because my husband served as a Marine. First of all, thank you for your service, but my I husband see. served as a Marine, and he went in 2003 into Fallujah. Yeah. But the same thing you're saying, the, the newscasters took, told them his family before he even got there, basically they knew through yeah. the newscasters
2: yeah well and you know and you know about like you hear whenever anything happens you know you hear stuff on the news like like, stuff's happening in that part of the country or whatever and then especially if something happens that anybody from whatever unit or whatever base you're on like we're on camp ramadi if anybody gets killed in any kind of operation all the internet and all the phones and everything gets shut off immediately until the family's been notified so they don't hear about it beforehand but of course everybody back home is hearing on the news oh this happened that happened and there's no communication we can't get through so it's just it's torture for everybody because yeah everybody's thinking they're going to get the call yeah yeah
0: unfortunately his mother actually had to watch his vehicle being blown up in a roadside bomb on the news (laughs) did not know it was him at the time but that was quite an interesting story
1: yeah, and that's, uh, again, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but September 11th is what kind of kicked off the events mm-hmm. that put us at war for so long, that put so many of our uh, guys and gals in harm's way. So, John, I want to go back um, to, to the actual day again, not to, to bring that back, but did you, and I hate to ask this question, but I want to know, and I think some of our viewers might be interested. Did you lose anyone from your office in the uh, New York City Attorney's Office that morning?
2: Nobody from our office, yeah. Fortunately, again, a bunch of lazy lawyers. there were... <laughs> You know like like an 80 year old lady who'd been working there for 40 years and like two weirdos that liked working early were the only people you know and they got out of the building they got out of the building just fine um you know so all the you know and i was there i went there as a single person they didn't have any family in town so all my connections to people being lost were either you know family members and friends of people that i work with or just dealing with all the family members you know one-on-one when we are helping them with all their affairs but yeah thank god i didn't yeah our office everybody in our office was fine
1: well that's and now so i would say and i you know again i don't, i i think this is probably the first time i don't know why you and i have ever discussed september 11th in all of our late night conversations we've never come up with this but <laughs> does it, you know, uh, does it stick into your head that like when, whenever it comes around this is 20 years later, do, does it bring up any emotion in your head or things like that?
2: Yeah. I mean, the first emotion is I can't believe it's been that much time. No. I. Yeah. It's when, it, And it's the time gets mixed up. Cause when Susan and I met, you know, that was until, you know, almost three years after, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that it was already three years in the mm-hmm. past when you know because that time gets all jumbled together but you know no it just makes me think it's a yeah it's just a time in all of our lives that nothing will ever really be exactly like that and the way that everything can change just in an instant that way and just sort of turn your whole world upside down you know and you just never know you never know when that's gonna happen our lives got turned upside down by a global pandemic a year you know and you just yeah but it's no i mean it it does yeah it makes, me, it makes me think it's been it's been a lot of years since then but it still thinks it still seems like it's yesterday
0: it has been a lot of years and we just obviously are pulling out of afghanistan now 20 years later so what are sure. your feelings how do you feel about that
2: i mean you know i'm guessing it's like you know when we left iraq you know that was that was hard for Anybody that had been there, you know, because we were there during the surge time when everyone was all hands on deck, you know, everybody was sort of doing, everybody was out, you know, living with, working with Iraqis, everything like that, and trying to stand them up and, you know, help them take security for their own country. And then, you know, and we left and then not long behind us, you got ISIS and everything like that. And we were stuck, you know, wondering, you know, how many of all these guys and gals and, you know shakes and politicians and shop owners and regular people you know that we worked with and made friends with you know how many of them are in danger how many of them are killed you know for having worked with us all that and i'm sure it's the same it has to be the same for people that worked in afghanistan that you know that deployed there and worked with people i got a buddy who was an army buddy from ocs that's in the foreign service now and he just came back from there you know and it's rough knowing you know knowing that you know going that we're we're going all right guys like this is your show again ready or not you know i think everybody feels that cuz you get invested you know even even when we were in iraq even knowing like that a lot of these guys that we were working with you know we're in ramadi so this is anbar province you know all the sunnis you know some of them used to be you know bath party members whatever mm-hmm guys, but now they're just, you know, you know, police and army and politicians trying to take their city back from Alibaba, right? And so we knew that some of them, even in earlier deployments, you know, the Marines that we would talk to, they had shorter deployments, right? So they had more frequent shorter deployments. So some of them were in Ramadi one year before. And they would say, yeah, this guy, that guy, that guy was one of our high-value targets last year. And now he's, you know, Captain So-and-so in the police department and stuff. So we knew, like, there's, there was nothing. It's, it was an ugly, dirty business. And, you know, but even knowing that not all these all – a lot of these people had questionable paths. You know, you work together toward a goal. You're allies. You make friends. You know, and then, of course, there's all kinds of people who are innocent, just civilians, children, everybody – and it's, they, you just, you get connected, you know, to that. And I know people feel the same way in Afghanistan. That's just, it's a hard thing.
0: Yeah, I asked because my husband has same feelings as you're describing as well. He served in Iraq, like we discussed, sure. but yeah, same feelings about Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, John, you, you, yeah. I remember you telling me, you and, uh, I, I believe, is Matt a major now up in Pennsylvania, Major Emerson?
2: Uh, he just got his lieutenant colonel. Oh, wow,
1: I'm, I'm impressed, Mr. Emerson, <laughs> if you're, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Emerson, if you're out there. I know you. You and he, you know, served together over there. You had friends, like for lack of a better terms, that were uh, translators. Did you not?
2: Yeah, yeah. The the so the translators were are some of the most interesting ones because they, you know, they're contractors. Some of them are from Iraq. A lot of them were from. Some were from other countries. Like a lot of them were from Jordan, right next door, and they would sign up with you know American companies like DoD contractor companies to provide translation services. And you needed these guys by the thousands, tens of thousands, every unit, you know, needs multiple, especially like counterinsurgency, you're working with, you know, local leaders and officials and civilians, you're, you know, and taking tips and developing intelligence and all this stuff. And those guys, you know, they would put themselves on the line, you know, if they were Iraqis, they're really putting themselves on the line, because if we ever leave, you know, there, that's, that's their neck, you know. And, you know one of the closest guys I know was from jordan and you know he was just fascinated because before the invasion you know they were neighbors to iraq but iraq was a, a black box you know to the jordanians and but these guys were some of the i mean they're some of the best assets because not only are they doing translation they're in every meeting you're taking with everybody but you know they're they become sort of cultural advisors and, you know, they're like, look, if you want to get what you want in this little thing, maybe you do it this way. And then they also kind of became intelligence assets, really. You know, they would say, you know, look, I've been listed like, hey, none of all the cops think that this guy is shady. You know, don't trust this guy. Or they would, you know, the guy I'm closest with, he went by Alex. That's not his name, but they all took just nicknames to protect their identities. Um You know, he was there. We were out working out of Iraqi, a big police outpost, huge police station with like three hundred guys there, and some of them are a lot of them are former militiamen that, you know, their sheik said, you know, now we're with the Americans, and so we they conjure this police force into existence. And but he would, you know, without going into more like, I mean, he he thwarted a significant, you know, threat like a significant operation that was in. sort of in the rehearsal stage against our facility just by you know snooping on all the Iraqi radio channels and walkie-talkies and things like that you know just in his off time you know so guys like that you know it's great when you see organizations like No One Left Behind and that kind of thing trying to do right by these guys because some of them you know literally saved American lives and put their own necks on the line so Yeah, they're just, yeah, the whole, the linguists, the Terps, we call them the Terps for interpreter. They're just a whole fascinating topic, and we know a lot of them a lot.
1: No, I do remember having conversations with you about that at some point. All right, so now you're back from Iraq, um, and you go now, and you're going back to being a lawyer?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was a three officer in the Army, and then came back, and we had you know, baby on the way and all that kind of thing. And so I stayed with the Defense Department, but just as a lawyer this time.
1: Yes, I actually got an incredible tour of the Pentagon once when that wow. was the case. Oh, yes, okay. am I allowed to say that, John? Or did I just get you, you in? You say it that. Okay. Yes, I got, I think I, I passed the background check miraculously, and I was able to go through the <laughs> Pentagon, uh, and that was out, out, for that was absolutely incredible. The museums part of that is then. So, John, we're coming towards the end of the show, but uh, Jude, do you yeah. have any more questions yeah, for John? Yeah.
0: So, um, you you wrote this book called The Valley. What inspired you to write the book on The Valley? about Afghanistan. um
2: i wanted to write fiction since i mean since i was a kid but i could never figure it out or make the time or anything and then after i got out of the army i was thinking you know that's a good i should write something in that vein because that's like i it's a community i know about right so you can write about the people what kind of people are in it and i had been reading we had small babies in the house and so i wasn't reading anything serious i was reading all kinds of crime fiction and spy novels and stuff i could read on you know three hours sleep whatever and you know got this i and i've been reading a bunch of journalism about you know these these crazy tiny bases we had in these really remote locations you know mountaintop bottom of a valley up in the crags in afghanistan somewhere and i've been reading about you know all that that whole situation and you know came up with the idea probably from reading all the you know crime fiction Dennis Lehane and everything of having like almost like an investigator like amateur detective kind of format of a story involving you know a junior army officer like I had been having to do one of these impromptu investigations like we all had to do sometimes and usually they're just pointless and they're miserable because you get sent to another unit because you can't investigate your own unit so you get sent to another unit and you have to hassle, you know, soldiers on their downtime, whatever little downtime they have, and ask them, you know, dumb questions about, you know, I mean, I had to investigate some guys fired a warning shot once and, you know, just through bureaucracy, I had to go investigate it and ask the questions. And you hate it because you're some outsider and they don't know who you are. They think they're going to be in trouble for doing the right thing and all that. So I just can't with this idea about a guy that gets sent to do a seemingly sort of pointless investigation. At one of these really remote outposts
1: and, you know, so so Jono, if, if September 11th didn't happen, right, never happened, yeah. do you think you'd, would have just stayed as a New York attorney and maybe never become an author never would have gone to Iraq? Um, I you-
2: mean, I never would have gone to Iraq.
1: <laughs> well that, that part's <laughs> true. Yeah, exactly. In the
2: army. No, I mean, I, yeah, no, I, I, I th- I would have tried to write books either way, but you know who knows what path you're gonna take. Um, so, the yeah, 9/11 had quite the impact been on. Been writing you. journalism, fiction, that kind of thing. So probably I would have found my way into that somehow. I wouldn't have been writing books about the military or Afghanistan, anything like that, because I wouldn't have known anything about it.
1: Have you uh, talked to the to the to your kids about September 11th? at all have you told them I mean do they know I forgot to ask this to some other people but do, do Colin and Lucy know what September 11th is yet or are they still too young
2: yeah Lu- Lucy knows you know at her level um, Colin knows a lot more detail and you know they started teaching them about it in school honestly before I even talked to him about it but he knows a lot more now and you know we we do commemorations he has not been allowed to read the valley yet it sits up on the shelf unless he's like climbed up on a chair and snuck in there i hope he has how, how old is he? he he's 12 now yeah he's
1: don't worry he's my godson and i trained him well so I, he's probably read the valley cover to cover already so uh, yeah.
2: don't say that Marcus. no
1: i'm i'm kidding i i only teach the kids good things
2: he'll get there
1: yeah well, Joy, do you want to, I think we're going to wrap it up, but do yes, you have sir. any other questions well, you have I left?
0: Well, it sounds to me that 9-11 really um, impacted you, obviously, to yeah. join the military and then to write this story. Do you yeah. have any other thoughts to all
2: add? On yeah. our all different paths, you know, just changed everybody's life around that time. John,
1: mm-hmm. do you have any final message about September 11th you might want to get out to anyone, or you just never, never forget, I guess, is the message we're, we're going with this week?
2: I mean, yeah. Never forget, don't let it just be a thing in history that is just something you learn about in history class because history can sneak up right on you and and bite any of us any day. And the thing that I hang on to most from that awful time, especially now when we're all at each other's throats politically and everything, is I don't know if this was just New York or all around, but you got a chance to see just sort of the magic of what happens when you know people have a common purpose and put aside their differences for and work together as something that matters because that's what it was like around those days you know and it came from darkness but that was you know it, it was a good thing that you never you don't usually get to see what we can do you know as Americans when, yeah, when we have a common purpose and we think about our commonalities instead of our differences. Yeah, you know, when
1: people ask me what is, what does it mean to me 20 years later? I I hate to say this, but that's probably the last time I remember the country just, I mean, that and the marathon bombings, just uniting together as one. Um, I remember living in Brighton, Mm -hmm. which was a neighborhood of Boston. And uh, one night, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but somebody played Neil Diamonds, you know, one of the college kids played Neil Diamonds coming to America through his window or her window, and everybody just kind of, you know, floated on onto the streets, and, yeah. you know, kids were drinking and having fun, and, you know, everyone was just waving flags, just saw flags everywhere. It was just a, a really, you know, the, the country came together. I, I hope you know, it doesn't take another horrific tragedy I, to have right? that happen. Yeah. I hope people will uh, eventually relax a little bit and watch the Protecting Our Freedoms podcast where we are, uh, you know, right down the middle and just like to, you know, bring in entertainment and then discuss our love of protecting our freedoms, yes. such as, you know, guys who were lawyers in New York and uh, joined the Army after such a terrible event. oh if you missed yesterday's, we had on um, Detective Sergeant Jerry Kane. He was a retired uh, New York police sergeant. I, I think you'd really like his show. It was uh, an amazing story he had on. Tomorrow we have on a, right. a, a college football buddy of mine, may we all pray that it goes well, who was uh, on the 76th floor of Morgan Stanley. Uh, when that got hit, uh, the first tower got hit, he began evacuating and was on the 33rd floor. He's going to tell us all this tomorrow when his tower got hit. Um, and, and he tells that story. So we're, we're trying to, to switch it up. I really appreciate you uh, coming on today. Again, on such short notice, um, the first person that came to my head when we, Joy and I were discussing September 11th, I said, you know, Jono was in New York now that I think about it. And I, I don't know why, John. we've never had this discussion before, to be honest with you. We've talked about Everything else under the sun late at night, but right. uh, this has never come up. So I was glad that you could call in today and uh, we could chat about it, and I'm glad you're still here. Um, and I you think know, so uh, Mark,
0: Sergeant uh, Kane from yesterday was probably one of those people directing John. Yeah, I was going to I was out gonna out say,
1: John, oh, two, two <laughs> things actually uh, that I, I wanted to bring up before we go is, number one, it wouldn't surprise me if Sergeant Kane uh, was one of the ones who was giving you directions. And I, I heard you mention earlier how they right. were dr- uh, dropping off lumber to build Um, stretch a um, stretches, right? Yeah. Um, so on Friday, uh, I went to cousin, your cousin, my sister, Anne, and I asked her if if she knew anyone. And she put us in touch with a gentleman named John Kenny, who made a documentary that is amazing Mm. called looking for my brother that I will get to Mm -hmm. you somehow. And he actually was one of the, he was also a citizen who I think was, and he made some of those uh, some of those stretches himself he said in the documentary so I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe you and he were both part of the same group of citizens making okay. stretches out of lumber in New York City and what a small world it is but it, again it's it's an amazing tale um, by the way when I, I hear from both Sergeant Kane um, from you from others about the absolute destruction that happened there that day you know the, the, yeah. the crater and all that and then last year or two years ago I went down to New York I mean I've been plenty of times since but uh, and to see the new building up, the museum, the resilience of New York is—it's just amazing, and it's—it's kind of like the American story where you can knock our buildings down, but we're coming back. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, as we're coming to an end, Joy.
0: Yes, uh, thank you, John. It was an honor to have you on the program today. Thank you for your service. So much,
2: guys. Yeah.
0: And all of our podcasts can be found on our website at www.ascf.us, as well as our. Facebook page, protecting our freedoms, and Mark, what are our other social media? We are again?
1: on all the social media platforms. YouTube, Rumble, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Gab, uh, there's some that I don't know. MeWe, uh, if there's social media. You made media,
2: some of those up, Mark. you those up. I, I do. I
1: have my, my partner in crime. I, they, they gave me a, an assistant John, because they know my brain is slowly beginning to fail. So Ryan takes care of all that stuff for me. But uh, you can find us on all of the social media platforms as well as our website, www.ascf.us. Today's guest was author and attorney John Renahan. John again was an attorney that day. Uh, thankfully you were late for work that day. Yeah. I don't know if you were on time. Being a Renahan, I, I would assume you would have He's been on time. Lazy yeah, exactly. One of those I'm sure the I'm sure the cops watching would say lazy city attorneys, but uh, <laughs> we want to thank you all for tuning in. Tomorrow we have Sean Pierce, who was on the 76th floor working for Morgan Stanley when the uh, planes hit the towers. We want to, again, thank you all for tuning in to our series, remembering September 11th, 20 years later. Jono, it was great speaking to you, as always, and I will be in touch. Joy, thank you for joining me, as always.
0: Thank you, Mark.
1: Thank you all, and we'll see you all tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. Eastern.